The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud, where each week we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On today's episode, Damien Thompson reads his profile of Patriarch Kirill, the billionaire leader of Russia's Orthodox Church. Jade McGlynn looks at the weird world of Russian state television. Why do ordinary Russians believe it? And finally, Nick Newman asks, how should cartoonists respond to war? First up... Damien Thompson. Until very recently, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, was most famous for being the owner of a phantom wristwatch. It had the magical property of disappearing from sight, visible to onlookers only as a reflection. Don't believe me? Google Kirill and watch, and you'll find a photo of the Patriarch of Moscow and all Rus meeting the Russian Justice Minister. It was taken in 2009, the year Kirill succeeded the late Patriarch Alexei II, a spiritual leader of 110 million Russian Orthodox Christians. On his head, Kirill is wearing a white kukulion, the so-called helmet of salvation, with side flaps like the ears of a giant basset hound. But his cassock is plain black and his wrist is bare. Only the polished table reveals the glimmer of his phantom wristwatch a £20,000 Swiss Brugge. With that sort of price tag, you'd have thought the Russian Orthodox could afford a better class of photoshopper. At any rate, the humiliated patriarch threw a fit. There will be a thorough investigation to determine why, in this instance, there was a crude violation of our eternal ethical code against digital manipulation, said his spokesman. The guilty ones will be punished severely. We can be sure that promise was kept, You don't mess with Kirill, a fanatical supporter of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, who was born 75 years ago as Vladimir Mikhailovich Gundyaev. It's probably his patronymic that explains why for decades he was known as Mikhailov by his superiors. His superiors in the KGB, that is, not the Orthodox Church. As a young priest and bishop, Kirill spent years infiltrating the World Council of Churches and other influential bodies on behalf of the Soviet Union. The evidence is set out in a paper entitled The Mikhailov Files, Patriarch Kirill and the KGB, published by the historian and human rights activist Felix Cawley in 2018. His sources are documents from the KGB archives in Moscow, which, he writes, were seen by a number of researchers after the archives were briefly opened in the wake of the failed August 1991 coup, but access was then closed again, after the Russian Orthodox leadership protested against the extent of the revelations. The panic was understandable. The then patriarch, Alexei, was himself a KGB agent. No religious leaders were allowed out of the country unless they were, doubling as spies, and that included Catholics, Muslims and Buddhists from the USSR. So it goes without saying that Father Kirill would have been one. What's interesting is the sinister nature of the task to which he was assigned. 
In November 1978, the KGB drew up a future plan of cooperation with its Czech equivalent to, quote, deepen dissent within leading reactionary church circles, to harass Protestant sects, to tighten its grip on the World Council of Churches, and to strengthen the position of an unnamed agent in the Vatican. The KGB mentions that it wants this agent, codenamed Professor, to strengthen links with Lvov Vice Province, home to most of Ukraine's Greek Rite Catholics. Four KGB agents are assigned to this task, the first of whom is Mikhailov, i.e. Kirill, who was the Moscow Patriarch's representative to the World Council of Churches in Geneva. Corley adds, The documents also reveal that the KGB was aware Kirill was corresponding with Rome-based Catholic professor Eduard Huber, rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute, even if the KGB backed away from attempting to recruit Huber as an agent. The now-forgotten Huber was a Soviet-educated Jesuit priest. His institute dealt with Eastern Catholic churches, the largest of which is Ukrainian. During his time as rector, the Ukrainian Greek Rite Catholics, hated by Moscow, were an obstacle to the Vatican's Ostpolitik. No wonder the KGB wanted him to talk to Mikhailov. Ostpolitik, the Vatican's normalisation of relations with countries behind the Iron Curtain, an approach rejected by Pope John Paul II, has been revived by Pope Francis. So too has liberation theology, an ugly hybrid of Catholicism and Marxism that developed in Latin America, well outside Kirill's sphere of influence, you might think. Not so, according to the late Ion Mihai Pasepa, the Romanian general and confidence of President Ceausescu, who was the highest-ranking defector from the Soviet bloc. According to Pasepa, Kirill Mikhailov's main task was to involve the World Council of Churches in spreading the new liberation theology throughout Latin America. He also repeated a claim by Moscow News that Patriarch Kirill was worth $4 billion in 2006, partly thanks to abusing his church's bizarre privilege of importing duty-free cigarettes into Russia. Joining the dots between these claims is not easy, but it doesn't require us to believe that Kirill, any more than his friend Putin, was ever a devout communist. He's always been a nationalist who believes Russian Orthodox Christianity is superior to any other variety. He could see the morale-sapping effect of liberation theology on the Catholic Church and was happy to help matters along. Far more important, Kirill believes that Ukraine, where Russians first converted to Christianity, must never slip from the grasp of the Patriarchate, or the Kremlin. In 2019, he took the extreme step of breaking communion with ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, the Archbishop of Constantinople and spiritual leader of all Orthodox churches, because Bartholomew had granted independence to the main body of Ukrainian Orthodox. Kirill also despises Greek-right Ukrainian Catholics who broke with orthodoxy at the end of the 16th century. Why then has he embraced glasnost towards the Pope of Rome, to whom these Ukrainian uniates, a term they hate, owe allegiance? The answer lies in an agreement that Francis and Kirill signed in Havana Airport, of all places, in 2016. In the declaration, the two leaders say many worthy things, but the money quote, the reason the Patriarch flew to Cuba, was the statement that uniatism was not the way forward. Now, Ukrainian Greek Rite Catholics face oppression or death from Russian invaders, along with the Ukrainian Orthodox Christians Kirill excommunicated. At the time of writing, Francis has yet to say a word specifically condemning Putin. Meanwhile, a coalition of Catholic bishops, including the Irish hierarchy, 
have appealed to the corrupt and bloodthirsty Kirill to intervene in Ukraine, thus inheriting the mantle of the Soviet-friendly World Council of Churches dimwits, whom Mikhailov cultivated while plotting to deliver Christian dissidents into the hands of the KGB. The Patriarch's response was to present an icon of the Mother of God to Russian troops as a gesture of support for a campaign that had just killed a mother and her unborn child in a maternity hospital. There is, however, a glimmer of hope that Russia's bombs may finally blow the helmet of salvation off the head of this revolting man. Some Ukrainian Orthodox churches still belong to the Moscow Patriarchy, and this month, in one of those little liturgical gestures that can cost Christians their lives, they did a very brave thing. At the moment in the service where they pray for their spiritual leader, they left out the name of Kirill. That was Damien Thompson, and now Jane McGlynn. What TV is telling Russians, and why they believe it. If you want to understand how Russians see the world, it helps to watch Russian TV. The Kremlin's control over the airwaves permeates every part of Russia's television schedules. There are no longer soaps or series during waking hours, just relentless TV shows about Russia's place in the world. The popular and execrable news discussion show, 60 Minutes, now often lasts two to three hours. It is as if EastEnders and Coronation Street were replaced with 200 minutes of state propaganda. Such shows depict Russia's horrific assault on Ukrainian towns, cities and people as a special military operation. They are punctuated with clips of Vladimir Putin celebrating a successful and preemptive mission to free Donbass from genocidal Ukrainian butchers. Russians and non-Russians alike see the human misery and detritus of an unprovoked invasion by a fascistic army, except Russians think that army belongs to Ukraine. Clips and quotes from Putin's interviews are repeated across Russian media for days on end. Vestinijeli, a flagship weekly news roundup show fronted by propagandist-in-chief Dmitry Kisilyov, is a good example of the genre. It intersperses Putin's wild accusations with stories about Pentagon bioweapon networks in Ukraine, Nazis torturing children, economic collapse in the West, efforts to counsel Russia, and transgenderism. Despite clear evidence the invasion has stalled, the mood on Kremlin TV is assured. According to Vyestinijeli's military correspondent and army mouthpiece, Yevgeny Padubny, it is Ukrainian fighters that are deserting, not Russians, and it is Ukrainian supplies and equipment being destroyed, not Russia's. By way of evidence of Russian success, the camera zooms in on the corpse of a young Ukrainian soldier. This brutalising image is followed by efforts to humanise the Russian invaders, one of whom starts his interview by telling his wife that he loves her. Lots of the programming is designed to reinforce the image of Russians rescuing Ukraine from Nazi tyranny. On Tuesday, news channel Russia24 was broadcasting stories about Nazi battalions fleeing the wreckage of Mariupol dressed as women and using civilians as shields. The report suggested that the benevolent Russian army was refraining from attacking with full force to protect civilians. Viewers were also shown tales of Europeans protesting food price rises, snippets from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's criticism of US support for Ukraine, and stories insinuating that the US developed COVID-19. 
Russian news paints a picture of global misery that not only justifies the special military operation, but also tells Russians that the country's economic woes aren't the government's fault and that everything is far worse abroad. There is also plenty of unconvincing footage of impoverished Ukrainian villagers welcoming considerate soldiers bedecked in St George's ribbons, a symbol of the Second World War. In one video, soldiers decamp to a nearby field before retaliating, ostensibly so as not to give the Ukrainian army an excuse to shell populated areas. The viewer learns that this same field was the site of major battles between the Wehrmacht and Red Army in the Second World War, and that now Russian soldiers, descendants of the heroes of that war, are back to liberate Kiev from Nazis once again. Flicking through some of the other channels, historical analogies and Second World War references are a constant among a vast range of claims about what is really going on in Ukraine. There are comparisons made between modern Russophobia and Nazi anti-Semitism. Documentaries about Western-sponsored terrorism in Crimea are shown alongside videos about Ukrainian shrines to Adolf Hitler. But while these stories may seem confusing, or even confused, they are better understood as forming a part of Russian popular historical myth. In this alternate reality, Russia is under attack from the West, as so often in its history, and must either fight back, like in the Second World War, or be destroyed, like the USSR. Russian audiences are led to believe that history will repeat itself, either as triumph or as tragedy. Millions of Russians believe that Nazis have ruled Ukraine for years, and have been crucifying Russian children, burning people alive, and pursuing a genocide in Donbass. One of the first things Putin blew up after invading Ukraine was the Kyiv TV tower. It echoed his first moves on being elected president some 22 years ago, when he shut down and took over independent TV. And like a terrorist recruiter, the Russian state and its media puppets have been luring audiences down a path of radicalization for years, with increasingly extreme tales. If you look at Russian polls, it appears they have succeeded. State television has flaunted the latest Russian Public Opinion Research Center surveys, showing that more than three quarters of Russians approve of Putin's actions, and that almost 80% trust their president. The same poll shows that 62% trust federal television, up 16 points since the start of the war. Only 22% trust social media. Of course, these figures are massaged, but they are not imagined. And, in cases like these, they also encourage doubters, those who worry that maybe the pro-war Z symbol looks a lot like a swastika, to keep quiet, because nobody else thinks like they do. There are other, darker encouragements to keep quiet such as Putin's carefully chosen comments about the need to cleanse society of national traitors, a deliberate invocation of Stalinist language to conjure the memory of the repressions and murders of that age. As in the 1930s, baseless allegations of treachery are thrown around. Marina Avsyanikova, who interrupted state TV with an anti-war protest, has now been accused by her boss of being a British spy. In this atmosphere, it is frightening and illegal to tell the truth. I have seen plenty of people arguing that those who support the invasion are simply brainwashed or terrified. 
How else to explain videos and stories of Russian mothers refusing to help or even believe their captured sons? This is a comforting explanation, but it is not sufficient. I lived in Moscow when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. The intensity and effectiveness of the propaganda led me to leave Russia and conduct PhD research into its state media. I witnessed how, despite the insanity of the Kremlin's narratives, despite the accessibility of BBC Russian and independent media, despite the option to travel to Ukraine, many Russians really did want to believe the government's narrative. In particular, I recall when Russian fighters shot down passenger jet MH17, killing 298 people. I remember discussing this crime with two highly educated friends, and my shock when they repeated the Kremlin's unhinged stories about imagined Spanish air traffic controllers who knew the real truth, about Ukraine thinking it was Putin's plane, about the plane being preloaded with dead bodies. They must have known they were spouting nonsense, but they chose to believe it. But before we scapegoat the Russian mentality or soul, it is worth noting one of these erstwhile friends was British. Propaganda works because of general context and individual choices, not genetic predisposition. Even with the recent censorship of social media, most Russians have internet coverage and access to VPNs. If Russians wanted to look for alternative realities elsewhere, they could. They could choose to believe and to spread online the unpalatable truth of what their army is doing to Ukraine. They could choose to turn on the Kremlin and its own warped reality. But many ordinary Russians have made a choice to believe a narrative where they are the heroes or the victims, but never the perpetrators. That was Jade McGlynn. And finally, Nick Newman. Battle lines. Laughter has always been a coping mechanism for dealing with war. Some of this country's most memorable cartoons have been born out of conflict. Think of Gilray's Plum Pudding in Danger, Ben's father's, well, if you know of a better, I'll go to it, or Lowe's, very well alone, they are the quintessential images that define the Napoleonic First and Second World Wars. War didn't stop cartoonists in the thick of the action from making light of their circumstances. Bruce Bairn's father, a young officer who began sending jokes to the bystander in 1915, was invalided out of Belgium, suffering from shell shock, but continued to draw. His work was initially dubbed vulgar caricature, but his depiction of Tommy's cheerfully dealing with shelling and everyday problems on the front line, such as the absence of strawberry jam, resonated with soldiers. It became so popular on the home front that his character Old Bill, the walrus mustachioed veteran, was turned into a stage show that reached Broadway. In the Second World War, Ronald Searle continued to draw gags while he was a prisoner of war in Changi Jail, at the risk of beatings from his Japanese captors. He was imprisoned alongside the Australian cartoonist George Sprod, who, like Searle, went on to become a punch stalwart. These men may have had the moral authority to laugh at the horrors around them because they were on the front line, but the cartoonists back home didn't believe wars were off-limits either. In 1915, Punch's Frank Reynolds responded to the Huns' Hymn of Hate, their attempt at a morale-boosting song, by drawing a Prussian family indulging in their daily morning hate around the breakfast table. Even the pet Dachshund is scowling at the thought of England. A cartoonist's easiest and safest response to war is to draw chin-strokers, 
or what the cartoonist David Austin described as Tank Crush's Flower, an image intended to make the viewer think rather than laugh. As far back as the Renaissance, artists such as Dürer were producing chin strokers about the perils of war involving the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and the figure of death had been a popular trope for political cartoonists through the ages. In 1855, during the First Crimean War, artist John Leach drew the cartoon General Fevrier Turned Traitor about how the Russians' ally Winter Weather had betrayed them. Van Gogh, a keen collector of punch cartoons, considered the image of death in a uniform hovering over Tsar Nicholas even more profound and more serious than Holbein's Dance of Death. The master of the chinstroker was the evening standard Sir David Lowe, who in the Second World War combined simple profundity of message with a lightness of touch which appealed to all. His principal weapon was ridicule, not the arousal of hate or horror, as he believed that malice clouds judgment. Lowe's lampooning of Hitler led to his cartoons being banned in Nazi Germany and his name was even added to a Gestapo list of undesirables to be arrested after invasion. Cartoons flourished in the Second World War, from Bernard Partridge's heavyweight think pieces, steeped in allegory, to Fugas's propagandist Careless Talk Costs Live series, to Pont's social satires on a nation in conflict. The war even made it into children's comics. The Beano ran a strip lampooning Mussolini, charmingly titled Musso the Wop, He's a Bigger Flop. Drawing cartoons in wartime has always come with some risks. In 1915, the bystander ran a cartoon by a second lieutenant entitled Reported Missing, depicting a soldier drunk on rum asleep under a tree. It was deemed a disgusting representation by the Times and was said to prejudice discipline and recruitment. The magazine ended up in court and was fined £100, equivalent to £11,000 today, for publishing the drawing. The editor was sacked. Searle believed that his cartoons gently mocking his superiors when he was a POW led to him being seen as a troublemaker, so army chaplains nominated him to be sent to work on the infamous Burma Railway. It nearly cost him his life. Today, issues of taste and timing can be restrictive to a cartoonist's freedom. With Ukraine, I've tried to do jokes about the consequences of war, oligarchs selling yachts and football clubs and petrol prices, rather than the bombing or the fighting, says the Daily Telegraph's Matt, who has an enviable success rate at making people laugh in troubled times. Even so, he still gets complaints. The key, as so often with comedy, is timing. Before the first Gulf War, I drew a cartoon for Private Eye in response to what I saw as the tabloid press's gung-ho, butt-kicking triumphalism. The picture showed undertakers waiting at an airport arrivals gate holding up names of soldiers. By the time it was published, we were actually at war and that possibility of death had turned to reality. I regretted it. That was Nick Newman. And that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Do join us again next week, or why not switch over to our special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots, where Fraser, Katie and James discuss whether Rishi Sunak's leadership hopes have been dashed by this week's spring statement.